Alright, welcome back to Cirque Sci. Today we have a special guest interviewer, Max March Steinman, an NYC-based hand balancer, straps artist, and coach. He's an ex-science teacher who will be interviewing Dr. Ethan Weiss, a cardiologist and diet researcher at UCSF. If you haven't yet, check out the Cirque Cause Patreon, where you can subscribe and support Cirque Sci. Uh, there are other tiers as well, where you get coaching benefits and lots of online tutorials. But if you listen to the podcast and want to help keep it going, consider subscribing. Or rate, share, and review the podcast. That helps too. Well, what we learned was that not all weight loss is the same. So I guess quick introductions. I'm Max. I'm in New York. I spent almost a decade of my life as a science teacher and did a lot of track and field coaching, personal training in, in the meantime. I found Circus a couple of years ago and, and I've really enjoyed taking kind of a scientific approach to it, which is why I, I paired up with Aaron Cause here. Yeah, cool. Mac, Max and I, I mean, through the course of the pandemic, just sending each other research articles. We actually haven't met in person before hmm. um, and would look at those and extrapolate them to how it would apply to circus and athletes in the circus world since there isn't as much of that happening. So, yeah. Cool. All right, Dr. Weiss, take it away. Yeah, I'm, uh, I split my time between several different areas, but the two biggest ones are taking care of patients. I'm a cardiologist by training and focus on prevention. So I, I, I generally see patients who've either had a heart attack and don't want to have a second one or people who have risk factors that might predispose them to having heart, first heart attacks and don't want to have those. And generally my patient population is relatively young and healthy. A lot of athletes actually, a lot of former athletes. And then the rest of my time, I uh, have a research program that spans from sort of the most, not the most, but from basic science, physiology of metabolism, sort of how we store and how we acquire, store and utilize energy, um, we're very interested in interaction of several different hormone pathways, particularly growth hormone and insulin and how they regulate metabolism. And then in the past few years, we've gotten very interested in human nutrition uh, beyond the sort of obvious sort of science of obesity, but now even, you know, very into kind of how we might use nutrition as a therapeutic to treat metabolic related diseases. Mm. And your research team is composed of nutritional experts, cardiologists. Um, is, it, is it a large group that you have? No, small group. And I'm the only cardiologist. Uh, and it's a mix of PhD scientists. The person who led this study we just published was actually a graduate student who was finishing his PhD in biology. So um, if you want to explain the, the intermittent fasting study a little bit, you had um, an article published in JAMA, the um, Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, just this week. And um, we'd love to hear a little bit about the, the study and, and, and why you conducted the research. Yeah, for me, it was very 
personal. And it was published in Jan, one of the sub journals of JAMA has now like 10 journals. It was JAMA Internal Medicine. I guess, is it worth reviewing a little bit about what intermittent fasting, what form, different forms of intermittent fasting there are? Yeah, yeah so that would be great. I think typically uh, it's a relatively new term. It's a relatively new field. Uh, obviously, people have fasted for religious and other reasons for a long period, long time. But people haven't really been using fasting as a potential way to improve health, uh, at least not in an organized way for for a long time. It's only been about ten years. There was a series of so there's this bucket of what we call intermittent fasting, which means restricting calories beyond what would be natural intervals. So it's a little bit hard to understand what we might have looked like in a different time of human existence, right? We, we now exist in a time when food is available 24 hours a day, highly nutritious, very palatable food is available 24 hours a day. In addition to the sort of advent of refrigerators and preservatives, which keep food around and don't make it so that you have to go out and hunt it or you don't have to farm it. We also now have, you know, uh, this thing, which allows you to, to, you know, dial up Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever it is. So you can literally have whatever you want any moment. It's a little interesting to think about what human beings might've been like back when you had to live more sort of meal to meal. And obviously other animals, when I give a talk, I usually show a picture of a lion eating a piece of an animal to point out that like, you know, lions and other animals in the wild, they eat when they can find food and then they go period long periods of time. So we've evolved mechanisms to be able to survive between meals. It's basically why we have fat or one of the main reasons why we have fat. It's an energy storage. So again, there are these now people using intermittent fasting as a therapeutic, either to improve maybe weight loss or other metabolic parameters uh, within the bucket of intermittent fasting, which could be anything from fasting for a few hours to fasting for, you know, some people will do it for weeks at a time with just water. There's this other form called time-restricted eating or in animals we call time-restricted feeding. And that is generally done within a 24-hour cycle. So you're generally not restricting calorie intake or energy intake beyond one calendar day. So you're definitely eating some, generally eating something at least for, for some period of time during one day. And there are multiple different ways people do that. The most common and the one that we studied is called 16-8. So that's 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of eating. And my interest in this grew out of a series of studies that were published from a laboratory at the Salk Institute in San Diego back in 2012, 2013, 14, 15. And those are studies that were done in mice uh, and they were done to evaluate the impact of time-restricted feeding. And effectively what they showed was that if you took a mouse and you fed two mice the same exact food and they ended up eating the same calories, the outcome of the mouse in terms of how obese it got and how metabolically sick it was, was to could be altered by restricting or narrowing the number of hours that you permitted the mouse to eat during the day. In these studies, I believe it was nine hours um, that they were uh, letting the mice eat. And then they went on to show that they could actually, in addition to preventing the mice from getting obese and getting metabolic disease, they could reverse that by taking a mouse who had been eating throughout the day and narrowing the, the window down. So it was a very promising, exciting series of studies. In the studies, they also showed that mice ended up spending more energy at rest, what we call resting energy expenditure, which it's a good thing in our modern world. It's a bad thing if you're out in the outback looking for a meal uh, and you don't want to, you wouldn't want to waste energy, which brings up the sort of whole question of evolution, but we will, we'll come back to that. But anyway, these, these studies were super exciting. So I decided 
to try it myself and, and had success or personal success in that I lost some weight. I felt better. I didn't find it to be very difficult. And I started to recommend it to different friends and family and patients and then decided that, hey, look, you know, there's a lot of really interesting work that's been done in mice in other fields like you know, cancer or even in nutrition or metabolism that's then gone on not to be validated to be very effective in people. So we should, at that time, there were not, no studies that had been published yet in human beings. We thought we'd, we'd try to do this study in, in people. So that was sort of how the whole thing happened. Mm. It's too bad mice aren't the same as people. It'd be a lot easier. It's also, it's also the opposite of what you'd expect, to be honest, because if you're not feeding, you would, you would expect like you're, you're saving more resting. Yeah. Your resting metabolic rate would slow down because you need to preserve energy. Well, it does well, slow down in, in people. I mean, it's, it's part of our program to not die. And part of the prereqs for a uh, physical therapy school, obviously not in as any amount of detail as we're going to probably get into today, but you talk about, you know, fasting state, starve state, et cetera. And the, the general overview that you get in an anatomy class is that you're not gonna expend more at rest if you're starving. That's why we're doing this interview because there's a lot to, I think, talk about and clear up in terms of public conceptions and uh, athlete conceptions in the circus aerial world. Yeah, yeah, you had mentioned um, the resting metabolic rate in mice goes up. They're using more energy the less they're eating. Wouldn't that be detrimental to like survival? What is the rationale for that? Is it stress? Is it some mechanism that, that humans have? Yeah, it's a great question. It makes absolutely no sense, right? You wouldn't expect that if you were an animal, human being or otherwise, and you were starving, that you would want to accelerate your expenditure of energy at rest. You'd want to conserve it, which is consistent with all the data in people, right? When people lose weight, their energy expenditure goes down. There's this famous study done by Kevin Hall at the NIH uh, on these contestants in that show called The Biggest Loser. And so they, these people lost an enormous amount of weight, and he did all of this very detailed metabolic analysis and phenotyping of them and found that their resting metabolic rate went down dramatically after they lost all this weight. What he showed was that it stayed down, which made it very challenging for them to keep the weight off. Uh, but it is an evolutionarily conserved process that you would decrease your energy expenditure as you lose weight. Now, uh, I gave a talk yesterday, and I hadn't really thought about it in detail about why mice might be different, but somebody brought up a very good point, which I think is worth considering, which is that maybe what was seen in these mouse studies was an artifact of how we house mice. And uh, it's not apparent to everybody, but most laboratory mice are housed at uh, you know roughly 22 or 23 degrees uh, Celsius, very, very cold. So it's not technically what's called thermoneutrality for them. And so there are studies showing that that the results that we get in a lot of these mouse days are dramatically different if you house them at, at thermoneutrality, which is 32 or 33 degrees, you know, 37 More like degrees. what we would so, be uh, normal. Not so it may be that it is stress. It may be that it's, ther it's thermal stress. Maybe they're cold. It could be a, a bunch of other things, but clearly it's not, it's not really biologically uh, relevant, I think. Um, so it would be very interesting, although I'm not sure I'm going to do it, to go back and repeat some of those mouse studies at thermoneutrality uh, and see if indeed there are the same results. My guess is they probably would not. Although couldn't you also just repeat some of the human studies and make the people really cold all the time? I'm, I'm kidding. No, you could. It would be a lot more expensive and a lot more complicated, but you could do that. 
So, so moving from, from uh, animals to people, because generally when, when we see an animal trial, we, we do wonder what, what happens if, if you conduct the same study with humans. So that was, that was kind of what you did. You did it on a small scale with yourself, you know, your own experience with, with intermittent fasting. And then I guess um, moved on to, to a clinical study with, with uh, over, what, 100 people? Uh, yeah, we had randomized 140-ish and then about 115 or 16, I think, completed the study. And so you had them, you had them uh, in separate into two groups, one who did time-restricted eating, which was that 16-8 model where they didn't eat for 16 hours and then were able to eat whatever they wanted for eight hours, and then people who had normal three meals a day. And then you compared, you tracked them over a 12-week cycle, yeah? That's right, yeah. So the uh, duration of the study was 12 weeks, which is sort of a typical duration for a sort of, it's the shortest nutrition study that people typically do. I mean, if you go back and look through the long literature of weight loss studies, it starts off, you know, three months, and then there are six months, 12 months, and a few that go on beyond that, but not that many. But 12 weeks is sort of if you're, and initially our intention here was to really do what we would consider to be a pilot study to see if this can work. Again, to see if it can work. If it did work, we'd have to, we'd have to go back and do a a longer study to show that it actually is durable. But, but in our case, because of our results, we didn't end up doing that. So what were, what were your results? Well, I guess, so do you, I don't know. I mean, we can go back and just talk a little bit about the design. I think one of the things that we did focus our attention on was to do a properly controlled study. It's hard to do that in nutrition, whereas if you do a drug trial, you can give somebody a placebo and you can give them an active drug and they don't know which is which. And so it's effective blinding. It's very difficult, a bit borderline impossible to do effective blinding in nutrition studies. So we had to come up with a way to, to develop a control intervention because we really felt like we wanted to, I guess, let me back up and say that if you do any weight loss study, no matter what the intervention is, people are, are going to lose some weight. It's just part of the experience of, I think, sort of feeling like you're being watched. People make changes in their lives. They improve their nutrition a little bit. So, you know, things change. So we wanted to have a real control. We wanted the control to be something that wouldn't set off alarm bells in people's heads that this is a control group, right? Because we didn't want people then to drop out. Or if these people are being, you know, responding to an ad that's describing a weight loss study, the last thing you're going to want to do is like, you're, you're all excited to do a weight loss study and then you get randomized to control you're likely to quit. So we wanted to make people think that there was something to it. And we wanted to make it feel like it was, it was really one of the two arms and it was hard to tell which was which. And so as you described, we, we gently tricked people, I guess, to thinking that this was something when in reality, what we told them was to eat three meals a day, you know, between very broad windows of time, basically from the time they woke up to the time they got to bed. And we told them to, they could snack as they wanted to not to change anything necessarily in their diet, that we didn't tell them to change what they were eating. And we told them not to change anything else, you know, for instance, not to change how much they were exercising. So that, that was the basic design. And overall, what we found is that people were generally able to do the time-restricted eating part. So our intervention was what's con- conventional or now called late time-restricted eating, meaning that we told them to eat between the hours of 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. So eight hours and then 16 hours of fasting. So they would stop eating at 8 p.m. and not eat again until noon the next day. There are other versions of time-restricted eating that are earlier in the day. We can talk about that later if you want. But but people were generally able to do it. Uh, we asked them, I mean, at least as far as we could tell. We, we didn't have a video camera in their house. And 
they were not in a metabolic ward, so we weren't observing them directly. But but when we asked them how they were able to do it, they said generally they were not quite as well as the CMT group, the consistent meal timing group, but generally pretty well. And both groups lost a little bit of weight. So we had an overall study population of about 116 people that finished. And roughly half of those people, sorry, all the people got, we sent a wireless scale that they you know, connected. And they st we told them to step on that scale every day. And our primary outcome measure was the change in weight from the beginning of the trial to the end of the weight of trial compared between the two groups. Um, we also had a smaller group of people in whom we did more detailed analyses. And we can get talk about all those different things too. We did in-person weights in those people. And just so you know, the, the correlation between the in-person weights and the at-home weights was very strong. So uh, we, we found that both groups lost some weight, a very modest amount of weight. In the control group, they lost about seven-tenths of a kilogram, which I guess is a little bit more than a, you know, a pound. And in the uh, intervention TRE group, they lost about a, about a kilogram, so about 2.2 pounds over the 12 weeks. And while those changes themselves were significant or at least close to significant, the difference between the weight loss and the two groups was not, um, which I think you know highlights sort of one of the reasons why we chose to have a control group. We wanted to, to see, is there something about this intervention that was different than just being in a weight loss study? And so that was sort of the delta. I'll say one other quick thing about the design of our study, which is that we were testing a recommendation. We were testing a prescription of two different kinds of, e of eating, you know, eating of time, meal timing. Mm -hmm. uh, we were not testing specifically, does time-restricted eating work? We couldn't, we, I can't tell you that because we didn't actually have cameras there telling, you know, to observe people. We wanted to, because there was so much excitement and there were so many articles written in the popular press about time-restricted eating. And part of the reason people were so excited about it is that it's fantastically simple to do. You don't need anything fancy. You don't need a nutritionist. You don't need a coach. You don't need a calculator. You don't need to understand what a macronutrient is. You just eat during these you know hours of the day and don't eat during the rest of the hours of the day. So we thought we wanted to just test the recommendation. Does this actually work in the real world and people who are out living their lives does it actually help them lose some weight and improve other metabolic parameters? And so you found that compared to just prescribing three meals a day during waking versus sleeping hours, um, it didn't have a significant effect. Yeah, no. I mean, and, and again, I've talked about this study a lot in the past month since we published it. Um, and one of the questions we get all the time is sort of around the control arm. There are lots of questions about uh, you know, was it a really fair comparison, yada, yada, you know. Um, I think you, you can make arguments around our choice of a control arm. You can make arguments that, anyway, you can sort of contort yourself into thinking that this is actually um, something other than what we found. But at the end of the day, even if you ignore the control arm, sure, there was a statistically significant weight loss over the course of the study in the TRE group. But it amounted to one to one kilogram. That uh, that that's an average of 0.2 pounds per week per person. It's it's a really lousy way to lose weight. I mean, if you look at uh, at like other commercial weight loss programs, it's you know three percent is is like barely like just there. So one percent weight loss over 12 weeks is really quite poor. So again, you can ignore the rest of the study and 
I think what you can say is at least a recommendation or a prescription of this intervention doesn't really lead to effective weight loss. Mm. And I, I know that you, I love this quote that you made, which was losing weight alone doesn't mean good things are happening to your health, right? So as a marker, you know, of, of weight loss, it, it may not be that the actual pounds are, are what's significant. So what markers should people look for to track overall health, if not weight loss? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's a great question. The, uh, the, it, I think what you're getting at is that we saw this change in body composition in our study, which was something that was unexpected. And, you know, I've done a lot of weight loss, or I've thought a lot about weight loss, I should say. We're in the process of doing a bunch of different weight loss studies. But one of the things is that, you know, even you as an individual, when you, if you're trying to lose weight, when you step on the scale every day, assuming it's a sort of regular old-fashioned scale without any, you know, sort of body composition, whether or not that stuff is accurate but you're getting a, a change in your weight. And, and we all feel good or trained to kind of condition to feel good that you lose some weight. Well, what we learned was that not all, not all weight loss is the same, right? So I think most people would choose to want to lose preferentially fat and, and maintain as much possible muscle or lean mass. And uh, I, I don't know too many people who would try, prefer to lose lean mass over fat mass. Any weight loss study, you're going to lose both. On average, I think uh, the amount of weight, sort of, if you lose one kilogram of weight, on average, about a third of that is going to be lean mass, and two thirds of that will be fat mass. Um, and so it's it's normal, right? When you lose weight, when you're in a calorie deficit, you're going to lose some muscle. Uh, but we found sort of an out of proportion to to what would be expected for for the amount of weight that people lost. And again, I'd be careful not to call it muscle mass. It was, it was lean mass. It was technically fat-free mass. But, um, but we were able to calculate lean mass. And I think you can sort of impute that it was likely muscle, but we didn't measure that directly. Mm. And so I guess transitioning to athletes, because I think that's what we're most interested in, the idea that restricted eating could lead to you know, greater gains for athletes, I think has become kind of this popular idea. So a lot of people in the circus world have taken on intermittent fasting as a easy way to control their diets, right? And I think a takeaway for athletes is that if you're losing lean mass, that may not be ideal for somebody in the circus profession, right? I know that a study like by Morrow et al. suggested that time-restricted eating leads to, to greater fat loss while maintaining muscle mass. But they also found that testosterone and, and IGF or insulin-like growth factor decrease significantly with time-restricted eating. So for athletes, what are things to keep in mind if they do want to try a more time-restricted sort of diet? Well, I always start with the, what, I mean, whether it's an athlete or it's a non-athlete, I always start with what's your purpose, right? What are you trying to do? If, if it's, uh, you know, they're trying to improve their performance uh, whatever they use to measure their performance, I guess, would be what I would look at to see if it's actually uh, improving. I, I don't think I can't think of any like really good biologically plausible reasons why fasting would improve athletic performance. I guess it's anything's possible. I, I always get very uh, careful when when we start looking at marker metabolic markers, especially hormones. Um, I spend my life, you know, I've spent the past. 15 years of my life studying growth hormone and IGF-1. And there's still a tremendous amount of debate about sort of that hormone and its effects on metabolism or its effects on muscle or other things. So I'm, I'm very 
careful about over-interpreting changes in things like IGF-1 or growth hormone or other things. Um, but I guess I would start by that question, sort of what's the purpose? If the purpose is to improve performance, then you can measure performance and make that judgment yourself. If the question is about perf- improving, if, if it's about losing weight, again, sure, there are definitely, you can lose weight by fasting. There's no doubt about that, right? We've demonstrated that 150,000 times. You can lose a lot of weight and you can do so, I think, um, in a way that preserves as much lean mass as possible. Obviously, we don't set up, our bodies are not set up to waste lean mass. We, we've set things up to try to preserve lean mass as much as possible. It's the last thing to go. So preferentially, we will burn fat before we burn burn muscle. But of course, the most important thing is that your brain and heart continue to get glucose, so or fuel, I guess, ketones, depending on how long you're fasting. Um, so at some point, you will break down muscle and use the amino acids as substrate for whatever it is. Um, I, I think, um, you know, there, as I said earlier, we didn't specify to people to do things like exercise or not exercise. There are people, prominent people who are advocates for fasting, who do have, you know, very rigorous workout regimens during their fast. Uh, I haven't yet seen, I think, a very well-done study yet to look at the outcomes there, but but certainly it would be an interesting thing to to do. Again, to me, it's a little bit counterintuitive that you would build muscle and therefore build performance in a at a time when you had no substrate. But but it's it's possible. Yeah. So when I I mean I'm very interested in this, you know, in terms of diet and performance. And I think one of the big things that that most studies say is that you need sufficient protein in order to maintain lean mass. Period. You know, I think the minimum that that studies have found in in one of your works cited you mentioned was like. 0.62 grams per kilogram of body weight, but generally you need sufficient protein. Um, however, I think one of the big things that people try to think about is how to flip the metabolic switch, as it were. When I was talking to my mom, who, as I mentioned, is an endocrinologist, she was saying how these diets, whether it's intermittent fasting or keto, have a goal of um, transitioning from glucose as a main source of fuel, you know, sugars, carbs as a main source of fuel to using fat as a primary source of fuel. And I think that's something that athletes are also relatively interested in because fat has so much more energy density, right? It's over two times as energy dense. So if you can, if you can use it during exercise, well then ideally you have more energy to use during exercise, right? Or your performance can be better if you're using fat as opposed to um, sugar. At least that's the idea. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that fat-adapted athletes... So I guess we've measured ketones in people who fast for 16 hours. I've done it myself, actually, for 16, 18. Human beings don't really have detectable levels of at least beta-hydroxybutyrate for a fast that's shorter than... 18 hours. Uh, I mean, there may be some in some people, depending on their metabolic flexibility, but it's very hard to get detectable levels of ket- ketones with a uh, without fasting for a pretty long time in a, as a human being, if you're not on a ketogenic diet. Mice are very different. Mice are actually very, very much the opposite. Mice will have very high levels of, of ketones detectable in the blood after a relatively short fast, their metabolic rate is much higher. Ketones are just evidence that you're burning fat instead of, instead of carbs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there are two reasons. So we ketones are this alternative fuel source that we evolved to have 
that allow us to turn ener the energy of fat in directly into something that can be used by, particularly by our brains and our hearts. It's an adaptive, you know, sort of evolutionary conserved mechanism to preventing it starving. And, and they go up in, during starving. They can also go up when you restrict carbohydrates and replace those calories with fat. It's interesting about whether or not we're very interested to understand does the source of fat, be it diet or your own adipose tissue, matter in terms of how well you can make ketones. That's a very complicated question that's still unanswered. But probably at the end of the day, what matters the most is restricting carbohydrates, which causes your insulin levels to go down. Insulin is a very potent inhibitor of ketogenesis. Probably a lot of the same reasons why we make ketones when we fast. But uh, there are some studies that are that are out there about using about looking at athletic performance in people on ketogenic diets, and I think, you know, there's there's some uh, there are decent studies, but there there are, I think the take home, at least, and I'm not an expert, but the take home as far as I can you know recall is that uh, you can be a very very effective uh, distance athlete on a ketogenic diet that cyclists and runners and can perform extraordinarily well. Um, there's a guy named Sami Inkinen who's the CEO of a company called Verta Health, which basically uses the ketogenic diet to try and treat patients with type 2 diabetes. And he's a world-class triathlete. He's run, he's done, you know, tons of Ironman. He's set records and he's done them while in nutritional ketosis. So while on a ketogenic diet, he's been very effective. And there are other examples of people who've done very high level athletic performance on a ketogenic diet. Um, I think there's more of a debate about whether people who do more resistance type sports are getting benefit. I think if you ask a bodybuilder or a weightlifter, they'll tell you that it's a terrible, it's not, it's actually doesn't, it's not a very effective way to increase performance. Um, but again, I'm, I'm speaking sort of at a very high level because I, I don't know the literature that well. Right. I mean, the one, the one I'm thinking about, it's, it, I read it in a book, um, Endure by Alex Hutchinson, which reviews kind of um, the rise in ketogenic diets, especially around like the 2012 London and 2016 Brazil Olympics among elite race walkers. So they took um, these race walkers, they put them in the center and they, and they went on a, on a huge carbohydrate deficit to try to convert to, to a ketogenic diet. And I think you know, the interesting thing about race walking is it has like an upper speed limit, right? It has an upper power output. So it's really just this measure of endurance because you can only walk so fast, right? And so, you know, after hours, they found that, you know, uh, the majority of people didn't necessarily benefit from the diet. There was a small proportion of, of, of people who, who did get a benefit. But I think that there's biological differences that definitely have an effect when you're, when you're trying to convert or switch that, do the metabolic switch to go from carbs to fat. Yeah, this was an Australian study, right? I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm just a, I mean, I played sports in college, but I'm 51 and I'm a weekend athlete. And I, I, like, I did notice, so I've actually done low carbohydrate diet for two and a half years, almost three years. Um, and I did notice when I started doing it that I, I, was, I was a better skier. I mean, I definitely had more endurance when I would ski downhill ski but I also am a you know 51 year old man who's not like a, I'm not a ski racer so um yeah I think it's an interesting it's a really interesting field it's it's among many other fields like it in nutrition it's just not well studied it's I think one thing that we took away from our study was the hope that it would be an example of how you can do well-controlled 
and relatively rigorous studies in people. And so I think we should all aspire, I mean, that's my bias, is that we should all aspire to do more of these kinds of studies, whether you like the result or not. I haven't had too many people tell me that it wasn't well done. I think we were pretty careful. Yeah. So I think, you know, in the future, some questions that we would wonder were, would be, you know, what a ketogenic diet or a fat focused diet would do to endurance or to to power output, because it does look like people are more focused on using it for endurance training as opposed to strength and, and power training. As you mentioned, you know, there aren't a lot of bodybuilders who are who are proponents of, of this sort of diet. But yeah, it would be it would be great to see well composed studies of that. If we're looking at pros and cons of restricted eating, I'm thinking of a couple of years ago, they found, you know, a femur bone of a, you know, prehistoric woman. And they noticed that, you know, the the strength, they, they were able to realize that, you know, her, her level of fitness was that of like an elite rower, right? Which suggests that, you know, if she is food insecure way back, you know, 10,000 years ago or so, that may not have such a huge effect on overall strength. At the same time, there is this idea that if food insecurity or food restriction were so beneficial for athletes, then maybe marathon times and Olympic times from the 1900s or early 1900s would rival those of the times today, which they, which they don't because we keep pushing the world record further. So there's pros and cons on each side of the, the debate in terms of, in terms of athletics. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you raised so many good points and I actually once a few years ago went and looked at the world record. I think it was the world record mile time from like the 1850 through till now. And it's amazing how much it's changed. I do remember that like, if you go back to like 1915, that the world record mile time was like something that a high school girl would do now. Like it was, it was, um, it was, it's really dramatically coming down. Uh, so something has changed. Now there are lots of things that have changed in our society and our culture, but, uh, and I'm not, I'm not arguing that people were food insecure a hundred years ago or 120 years ago. They might not. You mentioned a few minutes ago about protein. I think, you know, if I had to guess, I should say, I, I believe our result is real. So I do believe that there was a greater loss of lean mass, or if you want to be formal, there was less of a loss of fat mass in the time-restricted eating group. I think it's very likely that that result is related to protein, either protein quantity or protein timing. I do think there are some interesting studies looking at when you have protein around and, and the effects on building new muscle. So I, I think in the future, we'd like to explore that, both sort of protein quantity and, and protein timing as potentially being important. If I had to guess, I would guess, and again, we don't have data, so I can't do anything other than guess. I would guess that the people in the TRE group were relatively protein deficient, and particularly, obviously, in, in the morning. And of course, if, if the study isn't necessarily defining or tracking mat- macros, that's going to be that's going to be hard to see. Yeah. So if you were to make one recommendation for for diets in general, I know Michael Pollan, when his book came out some number of years ago, he he came up with like this very simple mantra, which was eat food you know, not too much, mostly plans, right. right? And and I think if you were to distill everything down, especially during COVID times when, you know, we have our access to food is constant and, and I think definitely a good distraction from from everything. If you were to distill everything down, what, what would be your recommendation? Huh. Well, I, I'll give you two answers. One is my, I'm not one that you just probably won't like very much, which is that I've sort of tried to, to 
to steer away from making recommendations. As a result of feeling embarrassed about making a recommendation to people to do time-restricted eating and then doing a study that showed that it doesn't work, that was kind of horrible. Um, but I do think, you know, look, there's a lot more literature on some of these diets. Uh, you know, there, you know, if you want to go back to epilepsy data, there are a hundred years of data on ketogenic diets. There are decades of data on data on low-fat diets. You can pick any number of different consumer commercial weight loss programs that have oodles of data. So I, I'm sort of I have my preference. I certainly don't have any belief that my way of eating is the way that everyone else should eat. I, I, I don't. I think I often look for common ground between different nutrition tribes. Nutrition is a very tribalistic field. There are people who have very strong and religious dogmatic beliefs about it. Not religion in the big R sense, but you know, um, nutrition has become a very religious field. And, uh, and so I look for places where there might be agreement between these these different camps. And so I think, you know, Michael Pollan's mantra is a, is a good one. It's nice and looks good, like on a, uh, you know, on a whiteboard or something, but it's also not that easy to do. Um, so I, I think more practically what I tell people is the places where it does feel like there's common ground is to try to minimize your intake of, of highly processed foods. So I do think there's probably something different about these foods that have been engineered in a laboratory to taste really good and be addictive, right? Like these, you know, potato chips and other things. That Frito-Lays has a, you know, huge group of scientists who, who are spending their lives trying to make us want to eat more Fritos, just as the cigarette companies were trying to make us want to smoke more cigarettes. So whatever you might say about the sort of the other, you know, chemicals or things that might be in them, I just, I try to stay away from foods as much as I can that come out of a package and that have ingredients on them that I don't understand. And, you know, I have a science background, so I understand more than most people, but I try and keep it pretty simple. Again, I'm, uh, my bias is I'm a low-carb person myself, but I don't think that's necessarily, you know, my kids, my family are not, but I think I try to avoid, and this is sort of somewhat similar to processed food, I try to avoid refined carbohydrates as much as, as, much as possible. So, again, Wonder Bread versus sourdough bread, right? Sourdough bread, I used to bake bread. I used to bake sourdough bread. There are three ingredients. There's salt, flour, and water. That's it. You know, the yeast is made naturally. And uh, so three ingredients go into bread. I think it's probably a pretty reasonable thing to eat. And then the last thing is is, is a bi personal bias of mine. And I think it's a little bit more controversial, but but I'm not a fan of added sugar. I sort of feel like that's just empty. Like, I don't understand why you would ever put a sugar-sweetened, you know, soft drink in your body. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I don't think there's probably anything super great about diet soda, but, um, but I don't think, you know, adding sugar to things, look, if you want to have a piece of cake for your birthday, have a piece of cake for your birthday. I'm not, I'm, you know, not judging that, but I think generally adding sugar to things for no reason other than just sort of firing a bunch of dopamine neurons in your brain. Like, I don't think that's probably a great way to do it. So those are my personal beliefs. Um, those are great. I, I also want to go back to your first point, which is not the embarrassment of it, but the idea that the point of science, which is, you know, you need to question your most fervent beliefs, right? You need to put those under a microscope. So if you're the proponent of something, right, that's, that's the thing that you want to examine, right? And I think you did that. You saw benefits to intermittent fasting. And so you wanted to do a study to see if there were benefits to this 16-8 
intermittent fasting plan. And I think more than anything, the lesson is that, you know, in the face of new evidence, you're allowed to change your mind. Sure. I, and again, I'm not embarrassed about that part of it. I guess what I'm embarrassed about is that I was making recommendations about my own anecdotal experiences. I think we see a lot of that in our culture, right? I, one of the questions I get asked all the time around our study is, well, how, how do you explain that this doesn't work in your study, but it did work for Jennifer Aniston or other celebrities? And, and I think the power of anecdote is very strong. So I succumb to that, or that guy, you know, I, and people like to listen to what I say. I'm a cardiologist, you know, I'm, you know, there was something that came along with that. So I, I, I'll try, as I said, I'll try not to do that again. I do think we at least did approach the experiment with an open mind, right? We didn't, what I don't like seeing is people who try to fit data to their model. I think, you know, the way we're all taught to do science is actually to try to disprove our own, right? We should we're try and reject the null hypothesis. So uh, we didn't set out to do that necessarily. I mean, I think we were very disappointed in the result, frankly. We were surprised and 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 again, we asked the statistician to reanalyze reanalyze the data like twenty different times, and finally he said, you know, Ethan, like, there's no difference. Like, we can, I'll do whatever analysis you want me to do, but statistics is not going to solve this problem. And I think you know, there's also a bias in in scientific journals to publish uh, confer- confirmed hypotheses, right? To to go out and to prove what you were looking for, and that tends to be what's in the journal. And I think to have a journal publish something that that disproves what you were looking for is good research and should be more common. Yeah, I, I commend the journal. I think the journal is very happy that they decided to publish this. I don't think they understood. Some people think that journal editors love negative studies that disprove sort of uh, you know cultural norms or things you know that are out there. I don't think they thought through it that well. I will tell you that I, I've heard from them several times and they're very excited by the amount of attention that, that the paper has gotten. But I don't think that they went, they, that was the reason they published it. I think they published it because it was a well done study and it was, they felt like it was an important result. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Weiss, we really appreciate you talking with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun to talk with you guys. All right. So before we get into a few more practical tips based on the literature around training and food consumption, here's a little plug. Max and I are collaborating on an e-manual with a 12-week flexible program to take you from couch to aerial fitness. And stay tuned for it on both of our social medias at bow underscore ties and at circ cause. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right, now let's get back into the info on other food-related training tips. I almost want a little post-show discussion between you and I just about if people are interested in fasting, what would the best way to do that for lean muscle mass retention be from the research that you've read, Max? It goes for any diet, which is make sure you're getting enough protein, right? Regardless of whether you're trying to get your energy from fat or from carbs, you know, you don't want to be getting your energy um, from protein, number one. So you, you should be eating some fat and carbs. But number two is you need sufficient protein. You can't just be having energy. Um, our muscles function off of protein. Everything that our cells do requires protein. Um if your cells are dividing, they need protein. If your muscles are contracting, right? Like everything that we do requires protein. And I think 
that can be really undervalued. I know that a lot of people supplement, you know, they do the whey protein powder, they mix it in with their pre-workout, they do protein bars, which I also do because I'm a vegetarian and don't typically get enough. But I think the main thing is like eat, you know, eat enough to, to make you full, but, but do focus a little bit on protein. And I think the research has suggested that consistent protein, so eating protein regularly throughout the day, tends to be better for maintaining lean muscle mass, which is, you know, kind of what you want as an athlete. It tends to be better than, than just having all your protein in one fell swoop to be like, well, my breakfast was, you know, cereal and fruit. And my lunch was, you know, um, uh, a jam sandwich. And so my dinner, I'm just going to have as much protein as I can for dinner. And I think the idea is that, you know, consistently, supplementing protein is a little bit better than than just having like a protein shake at the beginning or the end of the day for for sure i mean i i love my jam sandwiches but i think that uh yeah based based on the research uh that consistent intake over time and even there is some evidence that indicates that an additional amount just before bed can help with muscle protein synthesis i have a nice little summary here uh by Dr. Jorn Trommelin. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that last name, but he did a guest article for Stronger by Science. And in terms of general recommendations, like one to three to one to eight grams per kilogram of body mass per day, or just in general, like 120 grams of protein per day, um, in terms of average recommendation, there is indication in the research that women tend to eat less protein than men but likely need the same relative amount in terms of body mass no and and i think you know it's also a good idea to remember if you're doing a lot of protein at once that can be hard on your kidneys too so if you're doing your 150 grams all at once one you're not going to be able to process it your body is going to take about 30 percent of its energy to process the protein in the first place. So you're not going to get that 150 grams, number one. And number two, you're going to have to filter that out, which, which, is, which is not necessarily the nicest thing for you. So, so, you know, if you can, protein at every meal or protein at every snack. Um, but, but I think, you know, I, I do want to be a little bit careful about making any recommendations. One, not being a dietitian or nutritionist and two, not being dogmatic. The idea of like, you know, the protein Bible or, you know, protein above all, I don't want to put it on a pedestal, but I do think that it is something to to consider just in what you eat in general, especially if you're an athlete. Mm-hmm. One, one, yeah. Uh, again, this is just a nice little summary by this guy who I'm sure knows about it more than we will ever. But um, in general, he recommends kind of 20 grams for 58% of athletes at breakfast, uh, like 36% at lunch and 8% at dinner. And also that in general, older adults will need more protein than young people. So just things to consider if you are a differently aged circus athlete. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, um, the more the more I've been involved in athletics, the more I've focused on on my protein intake and whether I'm getting energy from fat or carbs. I, I I don't necessarily put as much emphasis on that, but I think for me the the macro that I actually track or focus on is protein. So I would say it's been helpful. Um, so if that's helpful for you, 
go for it. Just in case you're listening and you don't know, Max is incredibly strong. And so his anecdotal evidence is what you should place above all other things, your own experience, research, etc. But it's if only you, anecdotal. If you want to be strong like Max and do everything Max does, protein. Well, thank you so much, Max, for doing this interview with Ethan. It was really fun to sit in and just listen. And... I hope I'm excited for the possibility of us doing more interviews together and separately and combining our brains into one mega brain. No, it, it was fun. And, it, and I think it'll continue to be fun. It was cool research and a great interview. As usual, I am your host, Aaron Cos, and this is Cirque